This message is provided by Bridgeway Community Church. Thanks for tuning in. Well, good morning, Bridgeway. I want to add my words of welcome. I want to say Merry Christmas to you. Maybe I'm the first person to say Merry Christmas to you, but I'm going to say it a lot. We're in a season, I think, where we need to prepare our hearts for the joy of Christmas and just being together. In fact, uh, singing those songs, I got to ask you to do me a favor because uh, almost everyone on the stage uh, were volunteers this morning. And I tell you, I just love singing and worship with you guys. Can you put your hands together and thank our worship team for leading us this morning? So, so good. Playing those Christmas songs. And it really is a, a celebration that I want to prepare your hearts for. I want to lead us for the next several weeks thinking about kind of this idea of Christmas as, as a party. Uh, so Bridgeway, party people, get your vibe on. We're going to party for the next several weeks and really prepare our hearts because the birth of Jesus should be the greatest party that we ever experience and celebrate. I imagine in your life right now, you're probably thinking parties. You're probably thinking lots of parties. You probably have a calendar that's just jam-packed with parties this month, right? You've probably got like family get-togethers, and then you've got those family get-togethers with the family that you really don't want to see. Just once a year, that's more than enough. And then you've got like office Christmas parties, and maybe you've got neighborhood Christmas gatherings or ugly sweater parties. Uh, in fact, uh, next Friday night, Sean and I are going to a Christmas party that we've been going to with like a core group of friends for about 25 years. It's a white elephant gift. I always go home with like the worst white elephant gift. So you can pray for me next Friday night because I want to win. Like I want to take the best gift home. So pray for me in a lot of ways. But uh, you probably have that. You probably have lots of parties that you're looking forward to. And maybe you got some that you're not super excited about. But again, the birth of Christ should be the celebration that's like no other that we prepare our hearts for. I don't know if you realize it or not, but what makes a party a party is really the people. And people will really determine how the party goes. You've probably experienced this. You've probably been at a party and someone walks in the room and they're just sort of the life of the party, right? I mean, just everything about them, they just light up the room. They're energized. They've got like this can-do funness about them. Uh, everything about them says joy and they're encouraging. And maybe even this morning you're sitting next to someone like that. But the opposite happens too, right? You can be at that same place and someone else can walk into the room and they just suck the life out of the room, right? I mean, they're sort of like party vibe killers, you know? And, and a lot of that is because they find like their way about nothing's ever right or nothing's ever good enough or they've never had a good day. They're just kind of complainers. You might be sitting so, next to someone like that this morning. In fact, our, our whole culture, our society today has, has a name for this person who complains all the time. Now, don't, don't shoot the messenger. I didn't come up with this name. But have you heard of what a, do you know what a Karen is? Some of you are like, oh, yeah, I've heard that term before, right? A Karen is someone who, who complains about everything. And I've been called a Karen before. So, you know, don't take it the wrong way. Like, I was having uh, dinner with my, my two boys, and we ordered this deep dish pizza, and I'm not supposed to eat that kind of food, and so I kind of took a slice, and I took a bite into it right from the center, and it was cold, and I just got, like, immediately, like, this is wrong. The world is not right, and I had to tell my waiter about this, that this pizza was cold, and, and the waiter went away, and of course, we got, like, a whole other pizza on top of it to take home with us, and immediately, my two boys said, Dad, you're being a Karen, and I'm like, first of all, get the names right. Like, I, I'm a Ken, at least, right? Like, at least I'm a Ken. And, and 
Truth be told, if you're a Karen and you're ready to walk out the room this morning, I got really good news for you. In fact, a large worldwide study was done, and they looked at complaints that were either called in or sent in to all these major Fortune 500 companies. Turns out, the number one complainer is not named Karen. And so if your name is Karen, you should be really, really happy today. Unless, of course, your name is Louise. That's at the top of the list. And this report was really quite interesting because it looked at all these different complaints from all around the world. And you want to know what? Uh, the number one country, top of the list of complainers, is us, the great U.S. of A. And it's so interesting. They actually broke it down by state. So you want to know the states with the most complainers in them? I'll, I'll give you the top four. Starts on the coast, California. Number two, Texas. Number three, New York. Number four, Florida. Uh, if you're wondering where Michigan is, we're pretty high on the list. We're number eight on the list. But you think about that. I, I mean, is there a trend there? Red state, blue state, everyone wants to do that these days, right? No. In fact, I got a theory. I think that the reason it's like that is we just believe as, as Americans, like, it's my right to complain. You know, I'm an American. I'm going to complain. And I want to just tell you this morning that Complaining is so easy to see in others, and yet it becomes really hard to see because of the blinders that we each wear. And in fact, if you complain, you will kill Christmas for yourself and for the people around you. And so I want to start this series, I want to kind of get the party going right by inviting us to take a look this morning, kind of a, a moment of truth, and, and to really look into the mirror. I want to invite you this morning to do that. And I want to give you, from a, a biblical perspective, I want to give you this morning the cure for complaining. And my hope all this week is, as God's been kind of working in my soul, that this would be sort of like, kind of like the deep work of your character, kind of character-shaping, soul-healing kind of work this morning. You know, as a pastor, I have lots of conversations, and I know lots of people, and and I can just go on the record of saying, I've never met anybody that said, you know, I wish I complained more. <laughs> you know, I wish I found more things to nitpick about. I've never sat with someone at the end of their life by their bedside and heard them say, gosh, I wish I grumbled more, right? I've never heard that because everyone knows that that's just not a healthy way to live. In fact, I think this message this morning has incredible ramifications on your spiritual life, but it also just, it matters to your physical well-being. I don't know if you realize this or not, but complaining does a deep work of damage uh, in your body as well. In fact, um, starting with your brain, there was a really interesting study done by Stanford University, and they found that persistent complaining actually uh, affects your brain. It changes the neural wiring of your brain, and in fact, um, it affects persistent complainers have been known to have sort of this impact on the shrinking of their hippocampus. The hippocampus is the part of your brain that does problem-solving, uh, rationalizing, decision-making, and so it's literally not out of the question to say to someone who's complaining to stop, you're doing yourself brain damage, right? And you know, for some people, it's already like, it's too far, right? I mean, they've already done that damage. And not only does it affect your brain, it affects your whole body. Um, complaining is linked to the production of cortisol. Cortisol is sort of that stress hormone. A little bit of cortisol is really good. You kind of need it. But a persistent, prolonged release of cortisol is damaging to your body. In fact, it puts you into a fight-and-flight mode, which maybe explains people who complain a lot. They're always kind of, you know, kind of 
they're always kind of in the corner. They're always sort of complaining or reaching out. And if you do that long enough, it's been linked to produce uh, higher results in diabetes and obesity and heart disease. Really cheery stuff this morning, isn't it? Yeah. And so I want to tell you this morning, I, I want to invite you today to make a vow. Just between you and God. It's not between you and the people around you, but just between you and God to quit complaining. And how that could be a tremendous gift for yourself and for the people around you. As I said, I want to get to the cure, but I want to do this maybe a little differently. In fact, um, I want to get to the cure by, by first kind of looking at the origin. Um, I was thinking of this week, like, how easy it is for maybe me to get up here and I could cite Scripture and verse, you know, thou shalt not complain. It's in the Bible. It's that way. Um, but it really won't help you because um, it doesn't help me to just be told, don't do that. And so I want to look at this maybe from kind of the way of if we could understand the origin, where complaining begins, uh, kind of a buzzword today, maybe if we could identify the trigger as to why we complain, then we can actually begin to stop it before it does the damage to ourselves and to the people around us. So I want to look at the origin to get to the cure, and to do that, I'm going to start right at the beginning. If you've got a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. It turns out that complaining is as old as dirt. And I would love for you to see this. In fact, I'm going to trace complaining um, through kind of the first few books of the Bible. I'm going to give you what I would call kind of like a meta-narrative, kind of an overreaching view of complaining. And it starts in the beginning. In fact, in the beginning, there is no complaining because God is this great artist. In fact, God is, if you're creative, if you're kind of a right brain person, um, God is like your best friend because God is super creative. And Genesis chapter 1 details how God creates. He, he just treats kind of this, this canvas of our universe and creates everything. And in fact, the Latin phrase is ex nihilo. He creates from nothing. And God just begins creating and, and separates the light from the dark. And he separates the land from the air and the water from the, the formations. And it's got kind of this rhythm. In fact, you should read Genesis 1 this afternoon. It's got this rhythm and this cadence to it where it says, and God created, and it was good. And God created, and it was good. And it's not a science book. It's actually more of this poem of how, of how God treats existence creatively. And he creates all these things, and then the pinnacle of his creation is he creates humanity. He creates Adam and Eve, binary beings, one man and one woman. And then he says... It is very good. And he gives this humanity, his creation, made in his image and likeness. He gives them just one command. He tells them, there's one tree, don't eat from it. And of course, you know the story, Adam and Eve do the one thing they were told not to do. They eat of the tree. And that's what we call, theologically, we call that the fall. Sin enters the world. And when it does, it kind of just perpetuates this this way of life. And it's the same for us today. When sin enters the world, it creates this shame and this regret, and this hiding, and it does the exact same thing in our lives today. And we see that God then doesn't give up on his humanity and continues to pursue them. He chases them down, this relentless pursuit of God. And as he does, he has these conversations with Adam and Eve, and we're going to pick up the conversation in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 11. This is God addressing Adam. He says this. He says to Adam, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, 
the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, you may read that and you may not think, well, that doesn't really have anything to do with complaining. But as I said, I want to I want to go back to the origin. I want to look at where it starts and germinates. And did you notice what happened in this little conversation with God? There's a lot of finger pointing, isn't there? I mean, God comes to Adam, and basically, Adam, you're the man of the house. You're the leader. You're, you're supposed to be kind of spiritually in charge. And, and he says, did you do this? Did you eat of this fruit? And what does Adam do? He says, that woman, right? Some guy, huh, ladies? You know, just throws her under the bus. And if that weren't bad enough, he throws God under the bus too. He says, that woman that you put here. I mean, that's pretty gutsy of Adam, right? I mean, like, he just, he just kind of called them both out. And God doesn't really miss a beat. He turns immediately to Eve. And I imagine just, you know, the, the shock and the awe of her having to respond now. And, and she gives what I would call kind of a, a learned response, kind of a behavior response. She saw what Adam did, and so what does she do? She points the finger. That serpent, right? And there's this great pointing the finger. In fact, I think if we want to start looking at this idea of complaining and we want to address where does complaining come from, what's the trigger, we need to really first start with this idea of complaining comes from when we shift the blame. There's a lot of shifting the blame that goes on. In fact, I know I do it, and I'm not asking for a show of hands if you do, because I think we all do. In fact, I was thinking this week just about how many things around us have this finger pointing. It wasn't my fault. I didn't do it. I got five kids in my house. Sometimes I think that when I was raising little kids, there was actually a sixth, sixth child in my home. And that sixth child was, I didn't do it, right, because I would ask them, like, well, who ate the last cookie? And, well, who broke the window. Well, I didn't do it. Like, nobody ever did anything in my house, right? It was always somebody else's fault. And we carry this as adults into everything we do. In fact, even kind of things that seem like, well, there is no cause, there is no blame, and we still find a way to shift the blame. Take COVID, for example, right? I mean, what do we do when COVID first happened? We point the fingers. Well, it's China's fault, right? It's the Republicans' fault. It's the Democrats. It's Fauci's fault, right? I mean, all these things. It wasn't my fault, we look at the elections we just came through, and I know some people just very frustrated with how results came, and even political parties, I listened to a lot of that chatter, and it wasn't our fault, you know, it wasn't my fault. You look at the economy today, I mean, nobody really wants to take the responsibility for higher prices, and it wasn't my fault. And again, if we're looking at the origin, we got to be honest and address this area, because if it's nobody's fault then we'll open ourselves up to saying, well, it certainly isn't mine to own. Therefore, I must point the finger, and I must shift the blame, and I must have something to complain about. Again, we're talking about the origins. That's the first spot. I want you to turn from Genesis chapter 3 over to the next book. Turn to Exodus chapter 16, giving kind of a meta-narrative, kind of an overview of complaining. And now I want to go from Adam and Eve to the entire uh, group of people that are following God. They're known as the Israelites. They're God's family. They're his children. And if there was one group of people that sort of take the cake when it comes to complaining, it's the Israelites. And it's not just Adam and Eve. Now it's a whole group of people. In fact, they've continued this blame shifting and pointing the finger and and continuing to sin. In fact, um, their sin and their disobedience has landed them in a really tough spot. They're slaves. They've been captive to Egypt. In fact, um, I was talking to someone this week, and, and they were asking, wow, the Bible is a lot. Like, it's a really big book. And if you think about it, the Bible is a really big book because of sin. 
Uh, if you took sin out of the Bible, it'd be a really sm- it'd be a pamphlet. It'd be Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. All the rest in the middle is sin and disobedience and shifting of the blame. Well, God does what he did for Adam and Eve. He comes to them, but this time he comes in the form of Moses. And Moses comes before Pharaoh, and God uses him in this miraculous way to free the people from Egypt. And they had been captives in Egypt for 450 years. And now they're free, free men and women, families. And they're heading off into the wilderness. And it doesn't take them very long in their freedom to get the complaint department rolling again. Exodus chapter 16, I want you to watch how this whole community reacts, starting in verse 2. It says, In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. I mean, you you hear the the drama. I mean, it's just like, man, can I get a little cheese with my wine, right? I mean, they're just like full of complaining, and it's so exhausting. And once again, if you read the rest of Exodus, you see that God doesn't punish them for the complaining. He actually comes alongside of them. Similar to how he rescues Adam and Eve, he rescues the people. He sends manna from heaven, and it's, it's just enough. It's their daily bread. It's food and sustenance for them to get by. But they're complaining. In fact, that phrase is just killer, right? Verse 2, the whole community grumbled. And they aim that grumbling right at Moses and Aaron. Those are sort of the mouthpieces, the leaders of this community. And it kind of struck me this week, you might find yourself in a situation where maybe you're a leader. And I got to tell you that if you're a leader, you're probably going to take the hit. You're probably going to be the subject of someone's complaining, whether it's in your office, whether it's in your home, your parents, your, your, your neighborhood association. If you're the leader, if you're in charge, you're probably going to take the hit. In fact, I know as a leader, there are sometimes kind of these moments and spaces where, where I know that decisions that get made for hopefully the betterment of the whole community Uh, Some people, some certain segments don't like it, and I become kind of the target of that grumbling. I don't look forward to that. I'm not trying to aim for that, but I just know you can never please all of the people all of the time. So make it your goal to please God all of the time. And my encouragement to you is if you're a leader, Moses is really good company, and he endured a lot of complaining. In fact, 16 times in the book of Exodus, these people complained against his leadership. But we're looking at the origins, and so I don't want to just talk about that they're complaining. That's a given. I want you to see the trigger for them. And it's these two little words, if only. In fact, I would encourage you to strike these words from your vocabulary. Because what they lead to is they lead to this this idea of always looking backwards. If only, and then they follow it up with, if only we had died, right? Like, death would be better. I mean, it's just, it's so dramatic. If we had died in Egypt, and then they start looking back. Oh, in Egypt, the good old days, slavery, chained to our wheelbarrow, right? Like they're, they can't remember. Oh, we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Kind of interesting. You look at that uh, from a cultural standpoint, and these pots of meat that they're missing was actually probably um, the way in which the Egyptians fed them, meaning they would go around and they would find carcasses of dead animals throw the dead animal, dead animal in a pot, and then feed it to the Israelites. That's how they treated the, slave, the slaves. 
I mean, literally, like roadkill soup. And they're looking back. They're saying, oh, do you remember that roadkill soup we used to have in Egypt? That was way better than this now. If you can't kind of pick up on what they're laying down, it's this whole idea of looking back. And if, if we want to kind of name it, I would say the trigger for us to be aware of is when we always are glorifying the past. Where does complaining come from? It comes from this glorifying the past, looking back. Oh, it was so much better back then. Grass was greener. Life was better. And I'll tell you, it just sets you up for, for massive disappointment. I, I was thinking, I was reminded about uh, of a friend of mine, and he was a, a really talented athlete in high school, like super talented. And he became a very talented athlete as an adult as well. And, and you don't know him. He doesn't live in the state. But every now and then, he'll text me. And I'll get the strangest text like, hey, are you at the high school? I'm like a 51-year-old man. I go there for my, my kids' events, but you can say, next time you're there, will you check the record board? Is my name still on it? And so I will, and I'll humor him, and I'll be like, yep, you're still the man. You're still, you know, jockstrap. Like, you're still doing it, you know? And it's funny how we just, we do that. We just think it's, it's always better back then. And if you do that, it'll just set you up. I tell you, accomplishments in this life are great. They're fine. But if you spend all your time looking backwards, you will never step into the future that God has created you for. And you'll always be disappointed with where you're at right now. I was thinking about this. And I was reminded of, a, of an old TV show. Uh, it's kind of old now. I kind of date myself with this. But um, there was a show that aired for a while on VH1. It was called Where Are They Now? Do you remember this show? And it was always so interesting because they would look back at celebrities and musicians. And, and then you would kind of be the judge. Like, how they doing? Like, they looked really good back then, but how they doing now? And so, I don't know, I'll let you decide. These were some of the ones that uh, are some of my favorite. And so, you know, happy days. Ron Howard, right? Like, looks so youthful and so young and went on to have this great career of producing movies like Apollo 13. But I got to be honest with you, he's not looking so good on that picture on the right. He's like, I think he's like 68 years old. Again, you can decide for yourself. I don't know if the beard is working for him. I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, next one. Here's, here's one for you. How about, how about Pat Benatar? Rocker from the 80s and heartbreaker. And did you know that she's like almost 70 years old in that picture on the right? Again, you can kind of be the judge of whether you think she's, you know, how she's doing in this life. Here's the last one. This is my favorite. Tom Cruise. Like, how on earth, where did this guy find the fountain of youth? I mean, 20, I think he's like 60 now, and he looks like he's going to probably look like that when he's 160 years old. You know, he just seems to have figured something out. Most of us do not age that well, right? And whenever you look back, you're always setting yourself up for this massive disappointment of where you're at. Instead, you're told to embrace your life. Well, last spot I want to look at is I want to have you turn from Exodus Skip over Leviticus. We're going to go to the book of Numbers, chapter 13. And this kind of looks at really the last moment in the life of this group of people, these Israelites. And they're coming to the end of their journey. They're actually, they've been wandering in this desert for 40 years, full of complaints, complaint after complaint. And now they're about to enter into the promised land. And so they do something unique. They send spies into the promised land, sort of like scope it out. And the spies come back and they report uh, back to the group that, it's as good as God said it was. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. But one small problem, it's full of enemies. It's full of really powerful people. And I think this is interesting. We, we all want this, this future where God gives us this land or this life or this, this ability to have an abundance. And while God might give you this land, you still must take it. You must step into it 
on your own. And the Israelites, they realize they're going to have to go and clear this land of their enemies. And it strikes them with incredible fear. Everyone except for one man, his name is Caleb. Caleb is a great baby name, I'm just saying. Caleb is a great name. He's 80 years old, and he's saying, we got to take this land. And watch the pushback he gets from the community. Picking up in verse 30, it says, Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. Here's the key. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there were of great size. You got one person who says, take the hill. It's an 80-year-old guy. I love that about the story. And then you got this whole group full of generations of people. No, it's too hard. We're going to get squashed. We're going to get killed. We can't possibly stand up against them. And that's the moment that they're called to step into. I think you'll always have some that will say, ah, it's too hard. In fact, I know in my life just this this desire to, to transfer this on to, to my kids and to the next generation that, you know, in life, and especially as followers of Christ, you're, you're called to do hard things. And those hard things might be spiritual, they might be emotional, they might be physical, they might be relational, but we're not called to back away. We're called to actually engage the hard moments in life. And it's not just about that. It's really about, I think, the way in which this triggers their complaining, right? It's verse 32. They spread among the Israelites a bad report. And this is probably how com- uh, complaining works, right? I mean, you and I hear something that we don't like, that we don't want to do. It's too hard, or I just don't agree with it. And rather than deal with the situation, rather than deal with the person, we, we act things out, right? Rather than work it out, we act it out, and usually by complaining, usually in secret, behind the voices and the people that we could actually fix this with. And that's what happens in this group of people. There's this grumbling that this whole community takes on. If we're looking at triggers and how complaining starts, we have to really address that there are environments of contagious negativity that we're all exposed to. And the trick is to try to figure out, how do I engage these environments and make change, and not just become like them? How how do I do this in a way in which I become part of the solution, not part of the problem? Really interesting. In fact, uh, groups of people, social dynamics are so unique. In fact, um, they've done these uh, experiments. In fact, University of Texas has done this work where they've actually looked at how you don't even have to say anything. Like, I'm doing all the talking right now, and you don't even have to say anything. But in a group, you can kind of pick up on how people are doing, just on sort of like how they're transmitting their emotions. And we do that through, uh, scientists call it neural mirroring. Like, actually, we begin to mirror the minds of the people around us. They did these studies that were so weird. They would put two people in a room, and one person would be told, like, don't say anything, but just have this, have this mental state of happiness and joy. And they found that within five minutes, that's all it took to transfer that happiness and joy to where the other person literally was walking out of the room, skipping and laughing and happy. And the opposite also would happen. They'd tell the test subject, hey, go in the room, And be angry. Be mad about whatever you're mad about. Just be as mad as you can possibly be. And within five minutes, the other person would, for some unknown reason, walk out of the room completely upset and frustrated. Environment matters. It's true. Birds of a feather truly flock together. And so we have to be mindful. In fact, 
I, I want to kind of close with this. I, I believe that this environment we're in is so important. I mean, like, what we do as a church really, truly matters. And if we have an environment of health and positivity, that that will transfer to the people around us and to those who come, and especially in this time of Christmas, visit and enjoy what God is doing here. And so this morning, as we think about complaining, I want you to just have a moment as we celebrate communion today to really truly address all these different triggers. I mean, what is it for you? Is there an environment that God has called you to be more positive in? Is there an element about you where you're always looking back and never reaching into the future that God has for you? Are you busy pointing the finger and shifting the blame instead of owning the areas in which God has called you to? And that truly brings us to this time, this moment of communion. I've been looking forward to this all week for our church, for you to have a moment with God to simply own those areas and those spaces and then to do something beautiful. I think communion is actually not just owning our sin and our error and our wrong, but then releasing it, giving it to the one who went to the cross, perfect, without sin, without shame, without pointing the finger, and instead offered us complete forgiveness. And that's Jesus. And so if you're new here to Bridgeway, you don't have to be a member of our church to celebrate communion. Uh, but in just a moment, the entire team is going to join us on stage, and they're going to give you a few moments to reflect, to examine your hearts, and then when you're ready, you can come to the tables. There are two in the front of the room. There are two in the back of the room, and on them, you'll find the communion elements. They're prepackaged. The bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken, and the juice represents his blood that was poured out, and both together are the covenant of grace and forgiveness. You can take those elements back to your seat and partake with them whenever you're ready. But then join us in singing in the celebration of Christmas. If you would bow your heads and pray with me, please. God, I want to pause and just audibly as, as a part of this community, God, just offer to you just a moment of confession, a moment of just being willing to say it's so easy to join the crowd, to complain, to be frustrated. And instead, God, I believe you are calling us as a church and a community and as a people, your people, to something greater. God, I pray that in this moment we would do the hard work and the surgery of examining our own hearts and inviting you into those places so that you can ultimately bring the healing and the health that we need. God, I pray that we would be the light that our world needs. And especially in this Christmas celebration season, God, that we would not move too fast past what you're doing in each and every one of us. Give us just really clear radar for the ways in which we can help bring your love and your peace and your grace to every person we meet. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the gift of your life and your death and your resurrection. Pray all these things in your name and everyone said, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Check out our app or website at bridgewaycommunity.org for more messages or to take the sermon one step deeper by downloading the Sermon Discussion Guide. 